name is Sally Bailey. I teach American literature um, and the visual arts here in Oxford, amongst other things. Um, and I'm delighted to be able to introduce uh, Deborah Priestley to you this morning. Deborah teaches at Queen's College, New York City, and she is a very accomplished mixed media artist. And she's going to speak today uh, to us all about her exhibition called Preserves. She'll speak for about 30, 40-ish minutes, and then I'm going to field some questions so to get us all interacting, because I'm sure you'll have plenty of things you want to ask Deborah. So without much ado, I'd like to hand over to Deborah now. Um, and thank you again, Deborah, for your time and patience as well. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me here. I especially thank Celeste and um, all the organizers and the sponsors for having me. And thank you all for getting here so early. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, preserves, which is um, more, I think of it more as a series than an exhibition. I'm sorry to say that earlier. And it's ongoing. I have several things that I tend to, I tend to work in series, and um, these things tend to overlap. And I'm presenting them to you in more of a linear way, uh, for hopefully for clarity. So the first image here uh, is entitled Looking Glass, and it, um, it came before this series I call Preserves. Um, it's the first one where I actually used the digital image. And when my grandmother opened an aqua blue jar of, of uh, homemade sweet pickles, it seemed that stories flowed out of these jars. And that's something that stuck with me all these years. Uh, one thing would lead to another and start talking about recipes, um, who made the recipe, where the woman lived, how she was related to us. So through this one vehicle, I learned a lot about family ancestry, um, maybe how bad the, the season crop was that year, the weather, you know, it goes on and on. Uh, more importantly, I learned, as I said, about ancestry, and, um, and that became more and more important to me over the years. We'd have these large meals, and they were, in my opinion, immeasurable gifts, as well as the trip to get from my parents' house in Ohio to Midwest to uh, another Midwestern state, Indiana and Illinois. It took about eight hours, and uh, there was a lot of singing uh, until Highway 70 was expanded, and it was a five-hour drive. But those times with family were, were uh, part of what, what formed my interest in a lot of this work. Um, as I became older, I became more interested in the way common rituals, such as the preparation and consumption of food and everyday objects used in these rituals, can inspire a dialogue. Uh, often the simple act of taking tea or mere presence of a teacup, a spoon, canning jar, for example, can become an important vehicle in the preservation and transmission of per uh, personal memory, ancestral knowledge, and historic events. So thinking a lot about the power of association and how common objects can inspire other things or recall other, other memories. The little, um, what is it, the little silver I'm looking at the The little silver uh, piece I acquired yesterday, the spoon in the, the chair, uh, will, will end up in some of this work probably. So this reference, this piece makes reference to my uh, grandparents' pantry. My grandfather, one day we, you know, we arrived, and the pantry is very proud of it. He made the little wide, the uh, wooden knobs for it, even. And he painted each pantry door a different color. And now looking back at it, it sort of reminds me of a color field painting. 
but they were painted so that they ranged from you know warm to cool colors, reds and greens, etc. And they were tall doors. Uh, so I started these as sort of making these niches. And uh, and I actually used a bottle of sweet pickles here on the left. Uh, the other side has an image of my grandfather's grandmother. And this is the first one, as I said, where I incorporated the image of the uh, image into the jar. It was a complicated process because I, I was trying to invent something that uh, I know has been done before uh, in historical pieces, but I was using t-shirt transfer material. It was pretty complicated, but the image is on the inside of the jar and protected on the outside. And that was important to me that it wasn't just stuck on the outside or printed. This is another construction. Prior to this, I was painting, I should probably say that, in a more traditional way. Uh, this one is a tribute to my father and his grandmother, or his mother, and a story he told me one day while my mother was preparing um, these fried apple pies of the kind that you, you know, you put in a dough and you fold over halfway and you fry them in the skillet. And I'd never had one of these pies before, <laughs> and I was 21. <laughs> Where did these things come from? And he was missing his parents. He was missing his mom and dad. He died in a car accident when I was in high school. And it may also have a reason to have a lot to do with why I still work like this. I'm, I'm not so sure about why I'm so attached to it, but I am. Um, he would leave early in the mornings, and his mother would give him a tray of sliced apples to put on the roof when they were driving. And he'd come home at night and uh, get them off of the roof, and she'd make these pies and store the rest for, for later. And it was in that moment, and again, I was about 21, where I remembered this other grandmother getting a small aqua jar off the shelf and taking apples out of it. So it, it, all those years later, you know, it, I, I had this memory from that talk. His father um, spoke with a whisper, and he had throat surgery years ago, and he only had a whisper. Whenever he had something to say, he would clear his throat and everybody would stop, you know. And I was kind of fascinated with that, how he could silence the whole house and it was full of people from family reunion, at least a hundred people. And you didn't know if something silly was getting ready to be said or something important, but the fact that everybody stopped to listen was kind of amazing to me. My father was also very quiet. I don't think it had anything to do with his father's voice or lack of. Um, but the fact that he told me the story about his grandmother, I found sort of a precious moment. So I wanted to make a piece to his tribute. So <clears throat> I used found objects um, and constructed the piece. There's various uh, jars in it. Some of the jars are dyed different colors. Um, you know, I realize now the importance of taking close-ups, which I never did with this, this work. But there are pickles in a few things, as well as hair. Um, hair was often cut and saved. Um, beads, rocks, I tend to collect a lot of stones. Uh, this is another piece from that series, and this is an image in the top of yet another grandmother. Uh, these are fam from a family picture, um, and these are uh, a family called the Andersons. And again, over dessert, I think, I learned that uh, a story about this family, and that is that half married into African-American families and half married into white families. And they come from an area in um, Illinois. And they settled, uh, there's an area called uh, Allison Prairie. And um, along the, some settled there earlier, part of the family, another part of my family settled later 
It came along the Trail of Tears. The, the park that came before that was in late 1700s. So they've been on that land for a very, very long time. Um, and sort of isolated from the rest of the communities. They were, they were considered, um, I always say they were considered black folks because they're buried in the black cemetery, right? But they're very separate from all the communi uh, communities surrounding them. Uh, but during that time, some would marry into white families. And uh, at reunions, everybody comes back again. But in, over the years time, you know, there was more separation. So I started making pieces. I didn't deliberately make a piece about, at the time I considered about race. I was making a piece about how, again, I learned more about this family and that they were related to through a conversation. This is my grandmother, Aunt Lizzie. She was an antique dealer. And every photo I find of her reminds me we are painting because she just disappears into the background. Uh, the photo I want to find again has a lot of teacups around it. Um, she had her things and her grandmother's things, so you can imagine they, they stacked up. So I tend to make pieces, I guess, in tribute to, to individuals that I want to remember. Um, this is a piece that's constructed of, I think it's like 110 teacups, somebody counted them at one point. They're loose, I don't know, <laughs> I didn't think about that at the time. But they hang by little teacup holders. Um, her house was was pretty amazing. It was an old Victorian house, and it literally rattled when you walked. Old floors, and she had a lot of china, and every area was covered with with so many things, but mostly china. Um, shelves, teacups were hung vertically in strange patterns. Well, not strange patterns, but you know, we hang them because they were vertically, horizontally. When she got older, she moved in with my grandmother, and. A lot of her things came with it, even though they were supposed to be for sale. You know, a lot of these were important to her that came with it. So I grew up looking at a lot of these these teacups. The funny thing is, when we went to her house, with little kids, my mom would say, "Don't touch anything." You didn't inevitably run into something, but you weren't supposed to just reach for something. Um, so they moved in with my grandmother, my uh, grandmother, uh, at her house, and then her house rattled when you walked. So I'm always around these these things. Uh, so I started to use these teacups in you know, a variety of ways, and I wanted to create this sort of endless loop. So some of the teacups already have images printed on them, and then I started to add images to more. This one is a decal. Um, it, I mean, they're all people I know. This is my grandfather. And then this one had the wheat image on the outside, and I added the image to the inside. Uh, and after this, and all these have much more pieces uh, inside the series, there's another series that I started at the same time as Preserves called Somewhere Listed. Again, I think this had a little bit to do with my father's quietness and my grandfather's whisper. Um, we were sort of, it was a loving environment, but you really, uh, as kids, didn't talk a lot. We weren't supposed to talk about it at the dinner table. I think when we look back, and I talked to my sister about it, she thought that was kind of mean. I said, well, I think it was because we were so loud all the time. We laughed, we played. It really was good, that, I guess, for a quiet time. But it was also a time that, that um, allowed you to, to sit in and smoke all conversations. And if you were quiet enough, you learned, learned a lot. Um, so I decided to. And this one, this showed at uh, June Kelly Gallery the first time around in New York. I decided to do a series of uh, larger-than-life figures, and they are about the proportions 
of the door. I think they're really about this size. And I used uh, images, uh, somewhat well-known images, those who know about quote-unquote black Indians, or black cowboys, sorry. Uh, there's also a book called Black Indians, which includes uh, some of these fellows because they're, you know, uh, a lot of them mixed, mixed race. Um, and then uh, started with Nat Love. They're all vine charcoal on paper. Ben Pickett, who's also mixed up with Bill Pickett. I think the U.S. Postal Service felt like one of them had a better image and they switched the names on which has been a nightmare. When it sometimes it's reproduced, they change the name on the piece. <laughs> but this is Ben Pickett, not Bill Pickett. This and Dart. I only know him as Jess. Mary Fields was the first stage coach. And this is my uh, five great grandfather. He was an early pioneer. The idea with this series was I was going to keep adding more and more. And I am adding more, but they take so long that I, you know, I have a couple of working and I put them away and come back out again. Um, but this is Austin Penn. He settled in this area I talked about before, Allison Prairie, um, late 1700s. And um, in 1810, he was uh, there for the, the uh, treaty between, signed the treaty between Tecumseh and Henry Harrison. And he's written about you know, the local books there. But I was doing all this other research and decided to start including my own um, ancestry and, and working from photos that I have. This is my father's grandfather, William Henry Priestley, and his wife, Annie Laura Denny. And in these containers, <coughs> There's sound. Um, depending on where they're shown, they're you know dispersed in, in um, different ways. But what I like to do is have the sound, the pieces emit sound at the same time. So as you enter a space, you hear a murmur, uh, and you have to get closer to isolate the narrative. Right. So the idea is that it creates a, an environment first, and then you you discover the narrative. Some one narrative is um, uh, an audio clipping that I took from videos, from interviews from, uh, of a cousin, my grandfather's cousin. She was 99 when she passed away, but she let me record her three summers in a row. And she was very sharp. And she told me lots of stories about uh, my ancestors coming from North Carolina and settling in the Midwest. Um, some traveled by way of tears, uh, trail of tears, and some came a little bit earlier. But what I didn't know was the Underground Railroad and the trail of tears that were set. So I became more and more intrigued with, with these stories. And the other thing that uh, happened was somewhere there before, and when the government started to move them out, and and uh, and, and they some of them followed trail of tears. Some wouldn't sign. They refused to sign. Some went all the way to Oklahoma, and then others just tried to assimilate in areas where they were. So they had fine areas that would support them in terms of agriculture. Trail of Tears was from Virginia? It's, it's 
from, there's a couple different ones which I'm realizing now. You know, part of the thing that's interesting to me is I'm learning more about American history because I'm interested in my own ancestry. So I'm not a historian, you know, so it's like always trying to gather information more and more. But this particular one was North Carolina on up through um, Illinois and Indiana. And then a strand of that went, went to, um, to Oklahoma. And I, I don't have, uh, I just learned recently that th this is a Portee, there are Portees in, in Oklahoma on a reservation that I'm actually related to and I don't even know. So that's my next step as I've got a letter to follow up on. So I wanted to play you something if it will work. So one is a narrative from Alberta Nichols, which she told me about. Another one plays uh, a clip of my father singing, Some Are Listening. And this one is what started this series. And this is my grandmother. Dear Heavenly Father, it is again you have spared us with the privilege of come calling upon your holy and righteous name. And now, Father, I want to thank you for health and strength, and I want to thank you for rain, wind, and food. Above all, I want to thank you for the mind to hold on to thine arm, chain, and hand. I know, Father, I pray, hearing God, standing out of the witness, you are a sin, forgiving Savior. So you heard now from my prayer, my day, which is past and gone. And I know you hear me again if I call and call you right. And I realize, Father, there is nothing I can do without you and sister and from on high. And Holy Master, we beg in thee this morning, always fail and ask for thee. Please don't fail, grant it unto me. And now, Father, now, Father, I want to thank you, Father, for my family. I want to thank you, Father, for the wondrous gathering we had on Thanksgiving Day. And I want to thank you, Father, for all the things. I want to thank you for health and strength. And I want to thank you for raiment and food. I want to thank you for the mind to hold on to thine unchanging hand. Now, Heavenly Father, we am a big leader in the sickness that's in all over the land and country. Ease that pain and cool that fever, I pray thee. Above all things, Master, keep the heart up on the heaven, the divine thing. Now, Holy Father, I'm begging thee, Father, to lead each and every one of them back home safe, I do pray thee. Guide the stern wheel, but to an everlasting will. Guide the driver who's going on in the head of mine, we pray thee. Drive the one who's driving in the back, but to an everlasting will. Now, Father, now, Father, remember my daughter and sister landed from me, didn't get here. But go raise her and stand by, Father. I know you're a prayer here in God. Over there, just as well as you are here. And you can hear now from my prayer, well, on there, my Father. And now, Lord, we're going to leave the cause in your hand. When we wound up the last ball of trouble, when we're drinking down the last cup of sorrow, when we're going in our room, Father, do not to come out anymore. We only beg thee, my heavenly Father, to be give us a home in our kingdom. As a prayer of your weekend, I'm a feeling servant. For Christ now, our name sake. So, thank you for listening to <laughs> um, What struck me about that was not only was it something that was, you know, important to me, obviously, but then I realized I'm not just saving these things that are so personal. There's, um, it's, to me, it's an art form. It's a, it's a prayer that turns into this sing-song, rhythmic uh, piece. And the, the way she wound up the day, it was Thanksgiving, 1970. And all these people came to, we call the hills, Patoka Hill, where my father was born. And um, at the end of the day, you know just from this, who was there? Who, well, you know who wasn't there, 
right? And that they were sick and that we said a prayer for them. Um, and she sent this on her way, you know. So I realized, like I said, that other piece, I didn't think really about being about race, but obviously there's this under, underlining um, facet. And then the same thing with this, that it's preserving, a, in, in my opinion, a, a form that uh, I'd like to, to uh, remember. And then, as I said, the other one, my father's singing um, somewhere in this thing. He has a really high voice. It sounds like a bird. This is really beautiful. Um, and I layered, I layered it up. I recorded him, um, and then layered the the recording as if it's a kind of canon that goes on. And yeah, I had the crickets to that. <laughs> so again, I'm trying to create an atmosphere. So I call them tongues, but I also call them my talking for wings. So at the same time, I started this preserve series. I had all these photographs, and um, I had piles and piles of photographs. So I think a lot of this has to do with my trying to uh, organize things, right? So I took one photo from each, from three strands, uh, the, the oldest one I could find. And uh, my family has this connection to this land because they were there for so many years. Uh, so that's an image of Allison Prairie, lots and lots of farmland. Uh, my mom makes these maps. Every time we go somewhere, she sends me a map. And sometimes I'll just ask her now, it's a game. Mom, can you draw me a map? How do, how do you get from Springfield, Ohio, where I was born, to Patoka? Or how, and this is two maps that came on the same piece of paper in the middle one day. Um, and and then I go now I go look at Google I superimpose and be really curious about this and she's pretty on it you know and all for memory you know no GPS involved and then this crazy one came in the mouth it was just one summer of a two week period we went to two reunions and a couple of relatives' houses so somehow these these get in sooner or later and then everywhere we go there's a rock I, I saw my mom and dad do this for years and now. I, I didn't hear it. I don't have a rock yet from here, but I'll have one. Um, this, for me, was just sort of a magical rock. It's a, uh, we call them Indian beads. They're not Indian beads. are like petrified rock, some kind of plantation, uh, a plant, sorry. And they break apart. And if you get them uh, in the center soft enough, you can carve the center out in Michigan. So they have all these things we make from them. The other thing that is in the family from my father's side, this is a reproduction, but uh, we have a puzzle very similar to this. Um, I didn't know much about my father's side. My mother's side was easy to trace. Uh, my father's side, um, I knew slavery interrupted that link. Um, but when they passed away, everybody was looking around the house for anything. I didn't know what they were doing. So I asked my aunt, I said, what's going on over there? You know, something strange is happening. She says, well, he's taking something out of there and it's already in mighty, <laughs> you know. So it was this puzzle that her great-grandfather made, who's a blacksmith, and he used that puzzle to challenge his wife's master for her freedom. And he won. So that puzzle stayed in family. And I'd never seen this thing. Again, my father, you know, I went to my dad and said, Dad, did you know about this? And he said, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, but I had to be around the women in the family. And that brings me to this. I know it's hard to see because they're small. And, but this was the first one I did and I called them the Preserve Series. And Preserves I divide into three sections. Again, organizing, I don't know about this. But um, this section is called Mattoon and it's, it has nothing to do with Maroon. I didn't realize that till later. I was going to get confused. Mattoon is a place 
again in, in Illinois, um, where we would go visit often. And so uh, when I talk about learning more from my, my, uh, the women in my family, I think about Alice Walker, and she talks about how women trace their family through their mothers. Uh, even though you know, traditionally we take on the man's name, we're really often learning through our mothers. This is a detail from the tall piece. So this for me, we'll go back here, is a, is a memory map. These are all grandmothers straight through the middle. And then it's somewhat chronological as you go from left to right. So it can be read a, a couple of ways. And it starts with some maps and um, some documents. I didn't have photos for some people. I just have a document where one person finds the next, you know, those types of things. So the, the striking thing about this, and the first time these were shown, this is Jim Kelly as well, I was nervous because they were very different than any other work I'd written. And I, I walked in, I mean, made, and I walked in, and, and everybody was deathly quiet. But I realized they were reading. And it was different than anything else because they were actually touching it. <laughs> and I don't know what made the difference. Like, you know, when is it okay to touch a painting? But I, I didn't mind. I just thought it was a very different experience for, for them and for me. And you see the puzzle here? So some are tall. I believe they're exactly the same height as this. This about um, 80 inches by 24, sometimes 36. And then there's a format that's 18 by 24. And I found myself, over time, my sketchbook changed from sketches to uh, measurements. <laughs> but I needed these jars to be life-size. And so I would find a format that still fit. I'm still trying to echo those pantries in grandmother's house. And so another part of the series is called Potoka Hill. We're all, you know, Potoka uh, Hill, Mattoon or Strange Fruit with another behind me. And the Toka Hill, this is that picture that I showed you before, the landscape, is repeated several times. <clears throat> I started thinking more about this jar, and um, it just seems like the perfect container, you know, the perfect device. It's like you can, you can layer things, it's transparent, you can add uh, a label to the outside, or what looks like a label to the outside of it. And some of these projects end up being um, big community events. People started sending me paper um, when they found out I was trying to collect white paper. Toys. Some made reference to specific experiences, and some are. Uh, uh, an airplane most people can relate to. I don't mind that people create their own narrative and that's part of it. The Strange Fruit series really came because Corinne um, Jennings and Joe Overstreet asked me to participate in an exhibition called The Long Memory. And <clears throat> I've been collecting images and always takes a lot of time collecting things before I can get going on the And I thought about using these kinds of images before, but I hesitated. And I, you know, I appreciated the opportunity. They also insisted that I not, I painted quite a bit before the works I showed you, and they didn't want the, the uh, constructions. Um, I think they didn't, didn't really care about the direction I care as much about the direction I was going. 
But so I, I thought about it. I thought, oh, I'm not sure I want to be part of this show. But then I thought a challenge was interesting. It's a good, it's a good, uh, a good challenge. And I started organizing the same way I did my own photographs. I started collecting as much as I could and shifting them around and creating little narratives within the larger narrative. Uh, this is a close-up of that piece. Some of the images you probably recognize, you've seen a lot of them this last day or so. And some, again, are the shorter format. So they range from broadsides to slip ma uh, ship manifest. Uh, we've seen Gordon's image, Nicole and Hank's work, and some others. Torture devices. And there are several pieces where I started layering the ship uh, image. While that was happening, um, we had the Amadou Diallo um, killing. Are you all familiar with that? There was a man who's, um, uh, who was killed by the policeman. They mistook his uh, wallet for a gun, and he was shot at 48 times, I think it was, and, and hit 19 times. And he became a, a martyr for uh, police injustice. Um, and I kept looking at him, watching the story, watching the news, there were lots of um, protests and riots and things. And I thought, I'm not sure I want to, I'm not always, it's not always easy for me to process these things in art or, you know, or any way, <laughs> actually. Um, and so one day, uh, the autopsy reports were, were published in the paper. It was just all over the place, you know. And so there was something sort of poetic about the images, horrible as it was. And it reminded me of images of St. Sebastian with her arrows in the body. Uh, so anyway, I'd see it's a little washed out here from the projection, but there's a, a blue wash on the background. And um, then the images. Uh, so that it's, there's a lot more subtleties here that you can't see. This is probably one of the first ones I started using a white background and returning to a little bit of my painting roots. At the same time, 9-11 happens. I lived in the Lower East Side, and our area was quarantined. So um, I went outside, took a lot of photos. I had no intention of using these photos in this work. But after a while, I thought, you know, I, I felt the need to, to do it. And so I started to incorporate those into the series. I think this is the only one of two that I actually did on the subject. And it gets hard. Time to move on, <laughs> you know. So. And it starts with these altars. And being from Ohio, I see it now more when I go back and something happens. But when I was growing up, people didn't do, didn't, these altars didn't spring up. They weren't on the street. So that was a, a phenomenon for me that was already intriguing. Um, there was a super down the street or somebody at the store that you would frequent when a person in New York passed away and was just offerings would, would show up. And so then I moved to New York in 80, uh, 84. So by you know 9/11, I was used to seeing that, but not not in this way. It was just phenomenal. Uh, but it, it starts with some more somber images at the beginning, to uh, even the, the grocery store. Just everything had a flag on it. And now I'm, I'm still collecting ridiculous flag pattern things <laughs> that I'm probably going to make another another work out of. The one thing that really struck me was this guy in the middle. And, bless you, there's a young man who was um, 
laying on a curve. Well, it's not really a curve. It was um, in uh, Union Square, and there's a there's a divider there, and people sit on. He's laying on that, and he was covered with the flag. And of course, it was very photogenic. It was it, it was a scene, you know, a very striking scene. But from there, it seemed like we were the only two common people at the time. So I ended up sitting talking to him, and there, we were just about four yards away from a, a really big altar. They turned that whole area into an altar. So I'm standing there talking to him. He's laying flat. I'm looking at people look at him, and I'm looking at the altar, and we're both looking at the, where the World Trade was and all the smoke. And he just says, you know, they have no idea what they've done. And we didn't describe who the they is, you know, <laughs> or what was going to happen next and what we feared would probably happen next. But it really stuck with me. So I ended up doing a piece just with him, his image. So the background is painted, and then these jars are superimposed over that, and the images of him are repeated in the jars. The other thing about these jars is they, they lend themselves to many functions, um, safekeeping, the idea of even reconstitution or distribution. Um, and I didn't talk about the process much there. Um, I started using actual jars and then later started combining images in Photoshop and sometimes painting into those, sometimes not. Uh, but this one is, is much more painted, I guess. Can I just ask, I'm mm -hmm. Where are you coming from? Huh? <laughs> Sorry. Hi. Are they printed on the jar? The first image I showed, um, the image is printed and then it's transferred inside the jar. These are done in Photoshop and printed out. And then I think of them as large collages or mixed media pieces because there's layers and layers and the jars are added to the flat surface. And then, I don't know, about eighth of an inch of garnish by the time I'm finished. So it's a, it's a real glassy surface that has some, some dimension to it, but it's pretty flat. And originally I started photographing jars in different positions because I was, you know, I was kind of amazed that some were balls, some were mason. I didn't know until I did the Strange Fruit series that they actually had slaves at the, the ball factories. Um, but I would turn them around so that you could sometimes see balls, sometimes not. But then the reflections became an issue. So from a period on, it's exactly the same jar. So that when you look at the piece, the reflections are on the same side. So I also do, and I'll go through these quickly, a series of um, drawings while I'm doing the paintings. Um, I'm very interested in, right now, I guess I'll was in patterns and um, the idea of cat's cradle. Does everybody know a cat's cradle? Um, string games are part of every single culture, and I've been collecting information on those. But this one I did for my nephew who uh, joined the Marines in the middle of all this stuff. And I thought about these other types of games, war games and the unknown. The string is red, which is not red here, but the red, the, the red thread uh, really does go through a lot of war. Uh, and I'm showing this, well, I know it's not sharp, but I'm showing this so you can imagine you can imagine the space that it's in. This singular view became important <coughs> to me as well, um, just a way to sort of calm and focus um, myself, really, and, and the viewer looking at the work. And I did this one after um, the Genesis. Are you guys familiar with that case? 
No? Okay. <laughs> um, Louisiana, six, um, and I'm hoping to get all my facts right here. Um, six children were um, arrested and um, treated as adults when they had a confrontation with some white children who didn't want them to sit under the tree in their school. So, um, by the time I thought, oh, you know, I kept following the story, and then by the time I decided to do some research, the first image that came up with the tree was cut down. <laughs> you just cut the tree down, like that's going to solve everything. But this thing went on for, for a long, long time, and the case went on for a long time. And the thing about this, too, I know it's subtle, you know. Uh, some people got it right away, and some people who knew the case um, would maybe not get it. And so I'm always wondering, too, uh, about my relationship with the audience. Again with the stones, arrowheads find a lot, this button, string games. My uh, friend of the family used to give us two dollar bills, so it's a way of saving a man. <coughs> That's a graphite line around each of these. Um, I talked a little bit about that process before, it's so labor intensive that I need to get away from it sometimes. So I do these drawings almost every morning. I don't do one every morning, but I'll work on one every morning. Um, this is a graphite drawing my grandfather. And I noticed a lot of the pictures from the time they all had a red tie. It was right. It's always red. So that red, uh, the tie is actually red and it's um, collaged on so stand out a little more. And then my father, over the years, has developed some memory problems and he's forgotten how to tie his tie. So this was a chart for him. Not that he's going to read it or anything, but um, just in thinking about him. And the, the ironic thing is that he taught me how to tie a tie when I was little, you know. And so when I go home, I tie his tie. Um, anybody recognize this object? How many of you know what canning is? Okay, a couple of people. So I'm interested in these, these utilitarian devices as well. That's a rack for, uh, you should put it in the pot first and put the jars in there, they're very hot. You fill them up and you can take the whole rack out. And I've done a series on, um, <clears throat> this was Swing Low Sweet Chariot on um, African-American uh, or Negro spirituals. And it was kind of a challenge. I, I want to see how little I can put in this jar in some ways. Because I, it, the empty space feels a lot to, I want to I leave room for other things. I, don't, and I know that some of the, I didn't mention some of the taller pieces, some of the jars are actually empty. And I'm not trying to fill every space. Um, this is sort of a memory of the night sky in Kotoko. That same landscape. Again with the cat's cradle. And now I'm collecting um, hair patterns. And so I've been doing a series of these. Yeah. <laughs> and most of them combine with lace. As you tell another short story. Um, there's um, there was always this dichotomy between, my, my mom's hair was straighter, she didn't know how to braid. <laughs> so I learned to braid from watching some kids at school, were at an assembly and somebody was in front of another kid. And I saw them scrambling, they chose their seats carefully. So the assembly had nothing to do with this hair, but I was sitting behind them and I was watching them more than whatever was going on in the, you know, the auditorium. And, um, and I was just thinking about how it's a lost art in some, some areas. And we should finish the story. And then we would go to church, 
and we had to take our hair out when we got to before we got to church. It wasn't considered proper. And I used to get angry about that. I thought, what well, we spent all week you know, working on these patterns, we finally learned, then we have to take them out. And I thought, this is absurd. And then one day, my mom said, just leave it in. It just looks wonderful, you know. So we go to church, and this woman told my sister she should take her nigger braids out. Now I know why she didn't want us to wear them. It wasn't because she didn't like them. She didn't want us to have to deal with that. And, uh, and this is another black woman, right? So um, my sister had some words with her, and then she went to my mother and told on herself. <laughs> well, she didn't get in trouble, but she, you know, she, uh, she says, Mom, I said something to Mrs. Rose that you, you know, <laughs> you're going to hear about later. All right. so. I just want to show you what I'm doing now. This is a series called Vestibule. Uh, it's an installation that I made for a um, um, carriage house in upstate New York. So I'm still using the, uh, you see the rocking chair? <laughs> I'm still using the uh, capsules, so to speak, but in this form, they're, they're silk bags. This is made out of organza. Uh, the objects inside are paper. There's stones in there, um, satin, and steel structure. It was three stories high, and as you walk, um, through the carriage house, you see a different view from each floor. And these are just two more pieces. Um, going back to the string cat's cradle, um, using found objects and stained glass. And this is for my ancestors. And Alice in Prayer is a very flat area, and from an aerial view, all you see is just a couple of pumps here and there. But I think about how they lived in this kind of isolated area, but. You know, kind of gave birth to a lot of, a lot of different facets there. And this is my version of Sankofa, which is also an ancestral bird. And the whole idea is you need to know where you're from to know where you're going. And that's it.